Amen. Thank you all for those good songs. We will be in Esther this morning. That's in the Old Testament. Esther. If you can find Kings and Chronicles, just keep on flipping past those and you'll get to Esther pretty quick. Esther. Esther 3. Esther chapter 3, and we will, Lord willing, make it through the whole chapter. This is a short chapter. We're trying to get through, through a chapter a week, and uh, we're doing pretty good. This is a good, a great story, but, but we really have to kind of see the story unfold and see maybe some little details in the story that we may miss that, that kind of help tie things together as we, as we learn about the situation and what had gone on. The, God's people had been scattered from their land. They were disobedient. The Babylonians had come in years earlier and, and taken over, and, and God's people were scattered all around the land. And, and by this time, the, the Medo-Persians had come in, and, and they were kind of ruling all that area around, uh, around Jerusalem and to the east of Jerusalem and a little bit to the west of Jerusalem. And that's where this story takes place, kind of right in the middle of the Medo-Persian Empire in a place called Susa. And of course, we have King Ahasuerus, also known as Xerxes, and he had a queen named Vashti, and well, she didn't, she didn't follow his commands the way he thought, and so he got rid of her. His advisor said, we got to get rid of her, and we need to find a new queen. And so last week, we talked about that, to search for a new queen, and they, they called for the women in the land, all the beautiful uh, women in the land, to come before the king. And so they all had to go through these intense beauty treatments. Boy, they had to, for months, they had to get their skin just right. They had to, they had to smell just right. It was, it was very intense, the requirements that the king had. And, and one of the women who came to go before the king in hopes of becoming queen was a girl by the name of Esther. And her, her cousin Mordecai was raising her. Her parents had died, and Mordecai had raised Esther, and it was Mordecai who had encouraged Esther to go before the, the, the king uh, in an attempt to become the queen, and, and Esther gained the favor, really, of everybody that saw her, the, the king's eunuch, the one that was over these, these women. He, he, Esther really caught his eye, and he gave her special treatment, and then all the people around it said they, they, really, they really noticed Esther, and she gained their favor, and even when the king saw Esther, boy, she, she gained the king's favor. And it was Esther who became queen of all the people to become queen. It was Esther. And what made Esther unique? What was special about Esther? Well, the unique part of the story is that Esther was a Jew. And that's an important point that we see as the story begins to unfold. Esther and Mordecai were Jews. Now, there were, there were likely lots of people of lots of, from lots of different nations who were in, who were in this kingdom of the Medo-Persians. And, and there's nothing really to suggest that, that the Medo-Persians uh, as a whole really, really hated the Jews or had anything against the Jews. They, they had really been pretty lenient from the, from the end of the Babylonian exile through Darius and Cyrus and Xerxes and Artaxerxes. They all really are kind to the to to God's people and and don't appear to have anything against them. But as we will see in the story, there is an enemy that is about to arise 
from Esther for Esther and Mordecai and for the entire Jewish people. And Esther had kept her identity a secret. Mordecai said, don't, don't tell anybody that you're a Jew. Now, we, we, we may question Mordecai's motives or we may question whether, whether Esther was, was a willing participant in this, but we really don't know. But all of these details are part of a bigger story. And today we're going to be introduced to the next main character in the story in Esther 3. So let's pray and then we will get started. Father God, we come to you and I pray that you help me to do a good job to preach and teach your word in a way that's effective, that's going to be good for your people, dear Lord, that we hear it, that we learn from it, that we grow from it and get something out of it. Help my mind to be focused. Help everybody else's mind to be focused. And I pray, God, that everything that's said today would be for your glory. Just hide me behind the cross. Take away any, any pride or any nerves I had, dear Lord. But that we all humbly submit to you. And that your word is, is, is spoken to us today by your spirit. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So Esther has now become queen under King Ahasuerus. And that's where the story takes place in Esther 3, verse 1. All this took place after King Ahasuerus honored Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. He promoted him in rank and gave him a higher position than all the other officials. The entire royal staff at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman because the king had commanded this to be done for him. But Mordecai would not bow down or pay homage. The members of the royal staff at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why are you disobeying the king's command? When they had warned him day after day, and he still would not listen to them, they told Haman to see if Mordecai's actions would be tolerated, since he had told them that he was a Jew. So here we are introduced to the next, really the last main character of the story, a guy by the name of Haman. And he was an official for King Ahasuerus. And it would appear that Mordecai had some official role too because Mordecai was lifted to this higher position. He was given this higher position than the other officials and everybody was to, was to, was to, was to, was to praise and honor uh, Haman in a sense. But Mordecai refused to do so. Everybody else was paying homage and honoring, honoring Haman for his new position, his higher up position than them. But Mordecai refused to do this. And everybody around him was asking, hey, why don't you do this? You're supposed to be doing this. We're supposed to be honoring Haman now. He's, he's higher up than us. And they asked Mordecai why he wouldn't do it. And we don't know the answer immediately, but as we get to the end of the passage we read, it says eventually these, these who were trying to get Haman, or excuse me, trying to get Mordecai to, to, to honor Haman, they, they went to Haman and they said, hey, Mordecai won't, won't, won't honor you. He's not following this command to honor you. And it says, because Mordecai was a Jew. Now, it seems that this is the only reason listed, that this, was, that this was Mordecai's reason for not giving Haman this, this honor that was commanded. This is the only thing we really see in Scripture, so this is really all we have to go by here. There, there appeared to be some tension between, between Mordecai and Haman, between the fact that Mordecai was a Jew and that Haman was not a Jew. So where did this tension come from? Well, we really don't know, but we'll read a little further and we will talk about that in just a second. In verse 5, when Haman saw that Mordecai was not bowing down or paying him homage, 
He was filled with rage. And when he learned of Mordecai's ethnic identity, Haman decided not to do away with Mordecai alone. He planned to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout Ahasuerus' kingdom. So Haman gets word that Mordecai's not willing to pay him honor and respect, and he is, he is livid. He is livid, and he finds out Mordecai's ethnic identity. That is, he finds out he's a Jew. And when he finds out he's a Jew, he says, I'm not only going to destroy Mordecai, I am going to destroy all the Jewish people. And so there's not really a lot of background between what, where this tension comes from in the story, at least not directly. But I think that there are some clues in the story that may give us an idea as to why this tension is there. The fact that it mentions that Mordecai is a Jew and that Esther is a Jew and that they're keeping that secret. The fact that when Mordecai is asked why he will not uh, honor Haman, he seems to respond because he's a Jew. And the fact that when Haman finds out that Mordecai is a Jew, that he does not only want to destroy Mordecai but all the Jews, it seems as though there may be more to this story. Now, I told you last week when we read about Mordecai and were introduced to him, that it said he was a Benjaminite. And you may remember that I told you to tuck that away for later because I think that's a, a, a key part of the story that, that maybe the author wants us to get in this story. Now, when we first read here at the beginning of this passage, it told us that Haman was an Agagite. Now, we may pass over those details and not think much about them. But perhaps there is some information there that we are to gain that may give us a little bit of a backstory about what is going on here. Now, uh, we, we read about the, uh, the uh, Agagites way back uh, in, in the story of, of in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 3. We read about the, the, the Agagites when Saul is commanded to go in and destroy all the Amalekites. That's the command that God gave to Saul. You are to go in and you are to destroy all the Amalekites. And in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 3, it says, Now go and attack the Amalekites and completely destroy everything they have. Do not spare them. Kill men, women, children, and infants, oxen and sheep, camels and donkeys. So this was a command that God gave to King Saul and said the Amalekites must be destroyed. Every Amalekite, everything, nothing is to remain. And then we read a little further in that story in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 9. Saul and the troops spared Agag and the best of the sheep, cattle, and choice animals, as well as the young rams and the best of everything else. They were not willing to destroy them, but they did destroy all the worthless and unwanted things. So, here we see the Amalekites mentioned, and we see the king of the Amalekites, and his name was Agag. And so the descendants of Agag were the Agagites. And so from this early period, we see that there's this tension here, that, that Agag, an Amalekite, was to be destroyed by Saul, and Saul didn't do what God said to do, and Samuel came back in, and Agag was killed. And all the things were killed, and eventually Saul lost the kingship because of his disobedience to God. But here we see 
a mention of two things that are important to this story. One, Agag, who the Agagites came from, and two, Saul, who was a Benjaminite, whose father's name, the scripture tells us, was Kish. Now you may remember when we read about uh, when we read about Mor- or, uh, Mordecai, that it goes through and it, it says Mordecai, the son of so-and-so, the son of so-and-so, the son of Kish. Now, it's possible that there was a Kish who was a, who was a close descendant of Mordecai, but it's also possible that when it mentions that son of Kish there at the end of the description of Mordecai's lineage, that it's pointing us back to the Kish of the time of Saul, that is Saul's father. Now, it's hard to know for sure, but it's not, it's not uncommon for that to be used in language, for, for you to say the son of somebody, and that's a way of saying that they are a descendant of that person, not necessarily a, a son by birth. For instance, a good example of that would be Jesus, son of David. Now, Jesus wasn't literally the son of David, but he came from the line of David. So it may be that when, when Mordecai, it's mentioned in that line of people right after him there, it mentions the son of Kish, it may be speaking of the Benjaminite Saul's father, Kish. And the fact that in Saul's time, that Samuel had Agag killed, that may be where this tension comes from. Now, there's no way to know for sure, but at least it's not unreasonable to consider that the tension between the Agagites and the tension between the Benjaminites came from that fact. And it may be that the author here tells us Mordecai was a Benjaminite and Haman was an Agagite, for that very reason. All right, let's read a little further. In verse 7, Esther chapter 3, verse 7. In the first month of Nisan, in King Ahasuerus' twelfth year, per, that is the lot, was cast before Haman for each day in each month, and it fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. Now, we read here about this lot that was cast, and we see the word Pur mentioned, P-U-R. And that would have been not so different uh, from, from when we talk about casting lots, like casting dice. It would have been something similar to that. Now, in those days, it is likely that when they cast lots in this sense, that they thought that there was some div- divine power that would make the lot fall on what it needed to fall. They were, they were casting lots to figure out what decision to make. Uh, perhaps in the same way that we'd say, well, let's flip a coin. Now, we, we, may, we may flip a coin. There's nothing wrong, for instance, of starting a ball game and flipping a coin heads or tails. Uh, hopefully, we don't think that there's divine intervention in that. We're going to flip this coin so that, so that God will make it land on heads or tails. Hopefully, we're not seeking divine intervention when we flip coins and draw straws. But, but in this culture, it is, it is likely that they probably were seeking some, some kind of divine intervention and thought that the, the lot would divinely fall where it should. And maybe God had, had some hand in it in some way, but not, not in the way probably that they, that they believed. And so remember that idea of pure, P-U-R, and the lot that was cast. And, and it fell on the month of Adar, which would be around February or March for us, uh, Then Haman informed King Ahasuerus, There is one ethnic group scattered throughout the peoples in every province of your kingdom, yet living in isolation. Their laws are different from everyone else's, and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not the king's best interest to tolerate them. If the king approves, let an order be drawn up authorizing their destruction, and I will pay 375 tons of silver to the accountants for deposit in the royal treasury. 
So Haman, with, with vengeance in his heart, a hatred for the Jews, goes to the king and says, Hey, king, there's some people in your kingdom, and they are, they are, their cultures and their, and, and their way of doing things is different, and they are, they are against you, king. They don't want to listen to you. They don't want to live for you. You need to get rid of them. They're going to be trouble for you. They're right here in the midst of your kingdom. And, and Haman says, Look, I want to be able to go and destroy these people. We need to take care of them. And he says at the end of the passage, he says, and I will pay 375 tons of silver. That's a lot of silver that he's going to pay. Where is he going to get the silver from? Well, I think uh, the answer to that question is found in the next passage. It says in verse 10, the king removed his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jewish people. Then the king told Haman, the money and people are given to you to do with as you see fit. So the king doesn't really ask any questions. That's kind of a theme that we've seen from this king. People come to him and tell him something or advise him, and he pretty much just does it. He pretty much just goes with it. I don't, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Maybe at times that's a good thing to, to seek the advice and listen to the counsel of others, but maybe sometimes you need to push back a little bit. But King Ahasuerus never really seems to push back. He seems to you make it say, seems to be a pushover. Now, maybe there are other conversations and things he says that aren't recorded. But the way the author is presenting the story to us with the information we have, it seems that pretty much whatever people are going and asking the king for, he's granting their request. And he doesn't ask about these people. He takes off his signet ring, which is, which is uh, giving whoever's asking for power power. They can put the king's stamp on whatever they need to, and the king's saying, okay, do what you want to do. The people that you want to destroy, they're yours to do what you want to do with. And he, he says there in, in uh, verse 11 that the money and the people are given to you. And that may sound a little confusing because it sounds like that in the verse before that, that Haman was saying, look, I'm going to give 375 tons of silver. But then in this passage, it looks like the king saying, I'm giving you money to go and do what you want with the people. But I think probably... What is, what is being said there is that Haman is going to make this big big deposit of the silver into the king's treasury. But where is he going to get it from? He's going to get it from the people. And so the king says, look, the money that you're going to get, the people, it's all yours. Go get the money and go do with the people as you see fit. And so Haman now has the power of the king on his side. He has the power of the king and a hatred of his enemies and he is ready to go and put an end to the Jews. But God is still involved. We have to remind ourselves of that because we haven't seen God, right? There's not a single mention of God throughout the whole book of Esther. Where have God at? God is right in the middle of all of this. All of these things that are occurring, God is in the middle of it. At this point of the story, we may say, oh man, this is going to be... This is going to be tough. This is going to be horrible. You know, when you get to watching a good movie or reading a good story and you see something happen, you think, man, it can end this way. And you got to flip the page and read the next part. You can't wait to see, man, this can happen this way. Man, there's no way out of this. How are they going to escape? MacGyver's a good show for that. Man, he's always in these troubles. Ain't got nothing but a, but a stick of gum and a shoelace. And you think, how's he going to escape? And then somehow he always escapes. There's always a way. And here for the Jews, it looks like there's no way of escape. What are they going to do, right? There, there are not many of them there. They're, they're in this foreign land. And here's about to be a command to have all of them killed. But God is still working. 
in the picture. God is still in the background as the story unfolds. Verse 12. The royal scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and the order was written exactly as Haman commanded. It was intended for the royal satraps, the governors of each of the provinces, and the officials of each ethnic group, and written for each province in its own script, and to each ethnic group in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus, and sealed with the royal signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to each of the royal provinces telling the officials to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jewish people, young and old, women and children, and plunder their possessions in a single day, the 13th day of Adar, the 12th month. The plan is set into place. Haman has the power. He has the king's ring, and he sets the day that they had cast the lot for, he sets the day and he sends the command throughout the whole province to all the officials and says, on this day, any Jew you see, annihilate them. Destroy them. Verse 14. A copy of the text was issued as law throughout every province, was distributed to all the people so that they might get ready for that day. The couriers left and spurred on by royal command and the law was issued in the fortress of Susa. The king and Haman, Haman sat down to drink while the city of Susa was in confusion. Now you can imagine as word of this began to get out, what must have went through the mind of the Jews. Oh my, what are we going to do? We are in a foreign land. We are hopeless and helpless. Who, who can stand up for us? What are we going to do? Except, just so happens, that right in the midst of the palace was a Jewish girl by the name of Esther. And God was very much involved in this situation, in this scenario. And Haman was relaxing with the king. He was happy as could be. Soon he would get his request. He would get his wish. Soon the enemies that he hated Mordecai, he would make an example of. And not only Mordecai, but all the Jewish people. And so while God's people were fretting, well, what were they going to do? They were in a dire situation. Their enemy was relaxing and having a drink. And all seemed well. Perhaps that's the way it is in our life. Sometimes we may feel like we're in situations where people are coming against us or our situation is against us and we say how will I how will I get through it where will my help come from well we're scurrying and afraid and trying to trying to make it and stay alive and it looks like our enemies are living the good life well that's what was going on in this story but I think that there's something else for us to consider in this story what we see here between Mordecai and Haman is a is a hatred at least between the two of them, and perhaps a hatred that spanned back for hundreds of years. A hatred and anger and a bitterness toward one group. And we need to make sure that we don't have that kind of hatred and bitterness in our life. Because it's very easy for us to have that. For us to hold on to grudges. For us to make enemies. 
and keep them our enemies for one year, two years, five years, ten years, fifty years. How many times maybe are we like Mordecai and Haman where there is a tension and a hatred between us and somebody else? How many times maybe are we a little too much like Haman where we long for vengeance, where we long for those who have wronged us in the past to be destroyed? Now we have to watch ourselves and we have to check ourselves because none of us are above those temptations and giving in to those temptations. We may say, oh, I'm a Christian. I'm not going to do that. Well, be careful. Pride comes before a fall, and, and people can hurt us in a lot of ways. And perhaps it's easy for us to hold on to things. That's why forgiveness is such an important command that God gives us. That's why he says, look, you've got to forgive or you won't be forgiven. But here's the danger is when people wrong us, or when we wrong people, is that there is no forgiveness. Now, forgiveness would make our world a lot better place. But what we do oftentimes is we hold grudges, and we don't forgive people. You know what happens often when you forgive people when they wrong you? They become your friends. But what happens when you don't forgive people that wrong you is they become your enemies. And man, when unforgiveness is part of our life and we begin to make enemies and we dwell on what people have done to us for years and years and years, it causes problems. Now, I don't know if this, this feud that they were having started way back in the time of Agag and Saul or not. Perhaps it did. Or perhaps it started more recently. But there's plenty of examples in our world of people groups all over the world that hate each other, that have hated each other for years. And there's no forgiveness, there's only hatred. And that leads to hard times. And that's what we see in here. It leads to us perhaps having a heart sometimes where we want to see other people suffer or we want to see other people destroyed. But we don't want to live this way. We don't want to have that kind of tension in our lives. And the New Testament talks frequently about these types of things. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 43 and 44, Jesus said, You have heard it said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. What do we see here with Haman in this passage? He had an enemy. He hated his enemy and he wanted to destroy his enemy. How do we feel about those who wrong us? Do we make them our enemies? And if they are our enemies, what does Jesus say to do about it? Does he say to keep hating them? Nope. And you say, you don't know what he or she done to me. I don't know. I'm just reading God's word. I know what it says, and I know it's right. There are no exceptions. It doesn't say love your enemy unless they hurt you really, really bad, and then you can hate them back. That's not what Jesus says. That may be what we, what we want to do. And Jesus said, you've heard it said, love your neighbor but hate your enemy. And Jesus said, no way. That's not what I say. He said, I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's good right there. That's hard to do. That is so hard for us to do. But you want to start loving somebody you hate? Best place to start is to start praying for them. 
It's hard to hate somebody that you pray for every day. I'm telling you, it works. You know why it works? Because God begins to change your heart. Because when you get to the spot where you're saying, oh, God, I'll do it. I don't want to do it grudgingly. I'm going to pray for them because you tell me to. Man, when you, got, when you have just that little bit of a desire to seek God and do what He tells you to do, even if you really don't want to, but you say, God, I know it's right. When you give in to that, all of a sudden your heart begins to change. And you begin to pray for them today. And tomorrow it's a little easier. And next week it's a little easier. And next month it's a little easier. And pretty soon, somebody that you couldn't stand to see the sight of, one day you walk in the dollar store and you see them and you say, hey, how you doing today? Whoa. Whoa. Look at that. And you keep on praying. And next time you see them at the restaurant and you say, why don't you sit down and have a meal with me? Let me buy you dinner. Wow. Prayer is good. When you start praying for people, you love people. And when you love people, you pray for people. It's a good cycle. So you can keep hating people. And if you don't love people and don't forgive people, if you say you love God but hate people, you don't love God. The love of God is not in you. So you can keep hating people, but you need to really check your life if you say you're a child of God. Jesus said, don't hate. Jesus said, love your neighbor and love your enemy. And that's exactly what we need to do. Similar in Luke chapter 6, verse 27 28, but I say to you who listen, to you who listen, all right, I hope y'all are the ones who listen. Love your enemies. Do what is good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Do what is good for those who are your enemies that hurt you. Do what is good for them. Don't just, don't just put up with them. Don't just say, all right, I ain't going to hate them. Well, you, you, it's a step further than that. You can't just not hate them. You got to do good to them. Driving down the road, you see somebody that's done something horrible to you, hurt you in some way. You see them on the side of the road changing a flat tire. You could just drive by and say, okay, God, well, I don't hate them anymore. But you got to do more than that. It's not enough not to just hate people. we got to do good to people who hate us. We do good to those who do bad to us. So ask God to help you do what is good. It won't be easy at least not at first, but I venture to say the more you pray about it, the easier it'll be. Ask God to help you do what is good to those who do what is evil to you. In Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 and 22, Peter came to Jesus and said, Lord, how many times could my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? I tell you, not as many as seven, Jesus said to him but 70 times 7. So what do we do about people that keep wronging us? Is there a limit to how many times we forgive them? Well, I think not. You say, well, Jesus said 70 times 7. Well, I don't think Jesus is telling us to forgive people 490 times. I may be wrong, but I think he's just throwing out a big number saying there is no limit. I don't think we need to have a log book and we need to put a check mark beside everybody's name. Could you imagine what life would be like if you had a book with everybody that you knew and every time they sinned against you and you prayed, all right, God, forgive them, you made a check mark here. That would be a miserable life. I don't think that that's what Jesus is calling us to do. Peter's trying to put a limit on forgiveness, and Jesus is trying to say it's bigger than anything you can imagine. It's unlimited. So what do you do? 
You pray for people, you love them, you do good to them, and they still hate you and still do you wrong. Keep on forgiving them. Keep on forgiving them because that's what God calls us to do. And let us not forget, how many times has God forgiven you? Has God put a limit on you? I mean, after all, there are probably a lot of times that you don't deserve forgiveness. Well, there, there are no times we deserve forgiveness. God forgives us because He loves us and He's gracious. He doesn't do it because we deserve it. And how many times have you sinned and said, God, I've done it again, but I won't do this anymore. God, I'm never going to do it again. And a week, a month, a year, two years later, you do it again. You go back before God and say, God, I've done it again. And you know what God does if you're faithful to repent, confess your sin? He is faithful to forgive it. And if God is faithful to forgive us time and time and time again, then who are we not to forgive those who wrong us? We must forgive them. That's what Scripture says. Final passage, Romans chapter 12, verses 19 and 21. Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for His wrath. For it is written, Vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For in doing so, you will be heaping fiery coals on his head. Don't be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. That passage says, let, Lord, let the Lord take care of it. You got a problem with somebody that done you wrong? You don't have to get revenge. The Lord will take care of it. The Lord says, I'll take care of it. But in the meantime, here's what you do. Give them something to eat. Give them something to drink. Help them when they are in need. Don't repay evil with evil, but repay evil with good. Now we read about Haman and as the story continues, we may say, man, he is an evil man. He hates, he hates the Jews. He hates other people. He's evil. All he wants is, is vengeance. He wants revenge. Well, we're not so different than Haman. And if we don't forgive those who sin against us, then we will be just like Haman. We will walk around with anger and hatred and bitterness and we will desire nothing but destruction for those who we hate. And that is not what God calls us to. We do not want to be like Haman. We want to be like Jesus. Jesus doesn't just say love those who hate you. He did it. He showed us. And that is how we are to live. So let us be those who live for Jesus. Let us be those who do not repay evil for uh, repay. Uh, Evil with evil, but those who repay evil with good. Let's pray. God, we come to you this morning. We thank you for your word. And God, forgiveness is, is a tough thing for us. Dear Lord, as we, as we read this story, we see just how bad our, our, our hatred for other folk can be. So let us not be found to hate other folks for any reason. No matter what they look like, no matter what they've done to us, God, we don't want to have hatred for anybody. We want to love everybody, even the ones that are hard to love. Because, God, we ourselves, if we're honest, are hard to love. But you love us. And, God, I pray that you help us to forgive those that may have wronged us. God, you forgive us. Whatever our, whatever our life has been, God, you know our sins. But if we come to you and say, God, I have sinned, 
I don't want to live this way, but I want to trust Jesus. God, you forgive us. And that's what you call us to, God, is to put our faith in Jesus, to say, I'm not going to sin anymore. I'm not going to live for the world, but I'm going to live for Jesus. And God, even then, sometimes we sin, but it's not because we want to. We don't seek to live for sin. We seek to live for Jesus. And when we do, we just repent, dear Lord. So I pray that if there is one in this room that has never put their faith in Jesus, that they will know today that, God, you love us even while you're, we're your enemies. Your scripture tells us that. While we were still enemies, Christ died for us. And if there's one in this room that hasn't put their faith in Jesus today, they're still your enemy. But, God, you want to call them friend. And so I pray that they would repent, that they'd put their faith in Jesus. God, I pray that you'd help us to examine our own lives to make sure that we are not like Haman, that we are not holding on to tensions and grudges, that we do not hate people, but that we love people, and we do our best to pray for those people and forgive those people. And God, I pray that you help us to do it because it's hard to do. I thank you for your words. I pray that they'd be a blessing to us today. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 434. As we stand and sing, if God has put something on your heart today, maybe today you just need to you need to repent of something. Maybe you've got some, some anger and some, some vengeance in your heart. Give that to the Lord. Ask Him to teach you and help you to learn how to love like He did. Pray for those that are, that are giving you a tough time. And maybe, just maybe, you're the one that's giving others a tough time. Maybe you're the enemy. Pray that God will forgive you and help you to love those others. If God's speaking to you now, now's your chance to respond.
Amen. Thank y'all all for coming today. Hope to see you guys back next Sunday. I hope you got a blessing for being here today. Brother Sidney, would you close us with a prayer? Lord, again, we thank you for this.